would you, would you speak to us? We thank you that we have this opportunity to be together, to look into your word, and to worship together. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Drew. We're going to look at Genesis 39. Uh, I'm going to do like we've done. I'm going to tell you the story. I, I kind of alluded to this last week, but the, uh, the characters in Genesis, um, if I'm being entirely honest with you, uh, get to be a little exhausting to me. Each time that I go through these stories, I'm actually, like, even though I've been through these stories many times, I'm surprised again at the humanity of these stories, right? And yet these are, these are the chosen people of God, the chosen family of God, and they're presented with all of their flaws, which is also equal parts refreshing, right? That God, he doesn't present them as one-dimensional superheroes, but he presents them as they are with both their strengths and their brokenness. But then, almost like Moses as he's writing out this story and he gets to Genesis 38, which we skipped because it's terrible, uh, he was like, man, I wonder if my readers are getting exhausted. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give them Joseph. Joseph is the best. He is such a gift in the story. He is an incredible character that sort of seemingly uh, just, I mean, we know where he came from biologically, but as far as his, his heart and his integrity and his character, looking at his family of origin, like God was doing something in Joseph's life. It's really amazing. It's a beautiful story. It's an inspiring story. I personally have been so compelled by the story of Joseph over this past couple of weeks of reading, I'm now considering very seriously just spoiling my youngest son, Rotten, <laughs> giving him the best of everything, and just see what happens, right? <laughs> so let me frame this story before we dive in. I want to I frame your mindset as, we, as I tell you the story. Let me ask you a couple of questions. Has your quality of life declined in any way over the past year? You don't have to raise your hand or say yes, just wink. <laughs> have your opportunities diminished in any way over the past year? Have you faced what you would consider to be unjust circumstances over the past year? Has your life been negatively impacted in any way by people who have power over your life? And if you say yes to any of those, what has been in your life the sum total of the effect of that yes? And what I mean by that is <clears throat> if, the, if your quality of life has declined, if your opportunities have been diminished, if you've faced unjust circumstances or been negatively impacted, how has your heart responded, and how has your behavior changed as a result of those impacts? 
What attitudes and actions have risen to the surface as you've been put in circumstances that you would say maybe are less than ideal? What has that bubbled to the surface? Now, Joseph was taken down to Egypt. He was placed on the slave market, and he was purchased by a man named Potiphar. Potiphar was uh, the captain of the bodyguard for Pharaoh, and he bought Joseph from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. Remember, uh, Joseph's cousins. And then there's a little phrase that we're going to see repeated in this story, and it's such a critical phrase. Verse 2 of, of 39, it says, And the Lord was with Joseph. And he became very successful in his role. He was in the house of his master, the Egyptian Potiphar. And Potiphar began to notice that God was blessing Joseph, that God was with him, and that God was making everything that Joseph did prosper, succeed. And so Joseph found favor in Potiphar's sight, and Joseph became his personal assistant. Potiphar made him overseer over his house. He put him in charge of everything that he owned, and God blessed everything that Potiphar owned because of Joseph's management. In fact, it says that Potiphar no longer concerned himself with anything in his house except for two things. I don't even know why it adds this detail, but it says the first thing is, except for the food which he ate. Apparently, Joseph had made scrambled eggs for Potiphar one morning, and Potiphar said, it's really not your thing. There's something else that Potiphar withheld from him other than the food. We'll get to that in a second. But the next statement Again, almost as if the story writer says, oh, there's something I forgot to tell you about Joseph. Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, meaning he was very good-looking, and he was um, chiseled. I think that's the correct word. It came about after these, these things, after this time where Joseph was placed in charge of everything in Potiphar's house, that his wife had her eyes on Joseph, and she said, hey, Joseph, It's been interesting tension the last little while telling these stories in services where we have, you know, all ages present. So just so you know, when I say that she said to Joseph, I mean actually more than that, but I'm just not saying it. But Joseph refused her advances. He said to to her, to his master's wife, my master Potiphar, He does not concern himself with anything in the house. He's put me in charge of everything that he owns. There's no one in this house that has more authority than I. He has withheld nothing from me except the cooking and you. How could I do this great evil and sin against God? 
She continued to speak to Joseph day after day, tempting to entice him, but he would not listen to her. He would not go in and be with her. Now, in all of my years of reading this story, of hearing this story, of being told this story, I always pictured in my mind that the temptation was real, meaning she was attractive. But apparently, there's another version of this story, which I will let Skip tell you about. After hearing Skip's version, I, I was forced to go back and read the story again. <laughs> and I will honestly confess, I don't know which version of Potiphar's wife is the real one, so you can decide. It happened one day that he went into the house to do his work, and none of the people of the household were there inside the house, so he was alone. And Potiphar's wife grabbed Joseph by his cloak and said to him, <clears throat> and he left his garment in her hand, and he fled, left the house. And when Potiphar's wife saw that he had left his garment in her hand, he fled outside. She called to the other servants of the household and said to them, do you see what this Hebrew slave that my husband brought to us has done? He's come here to make fun of us. He tried to take advantage of me, and I screamed. And when he heard that I raised my voice and screamed, he left his garment beside me, and he fled, and he went outside. And after telling the servants, she kept his garment and waited for hubby to come home. And when Potiphar came home, she spoke to him and she said, do you see what this Hebrew slave did to me, the one that you purchased? He came here to make a mockery of me. And when I raised my voice and screamed, he left his garments beside me and he fled outside. And when Potiphar heard the words of his wife, which she spoke to him, his anger burned. And so Joseph's master, Potiphar, took him put him in prison, in the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. I'll remind you, this is, this is a, a very different judicial system than you're familiar with. There is no jury, there is no judge. <clears throat> there is no politician to whom he could lobby 
and when you ended up in the king's prison, there was a really good chance you would die in the king's prison. But the Lord was with Joseph. This guy kills me. God gave him favor in the sight of the warden of the prison, and the warden of the prison put Joseph in charge of all of the prisoners who were in the prison. In fact, he was put in charge of everything. Joseph was responsible for running the prison because he served with the favor and kindness of the Lord as his, as his motivational energy. And the warden had such confidence of his capacity to serve him that he stopped supervising anything that Joseph was in charge of because he saw that God was with him and that God was prospering him. What does this story have to say to us about facing setbacks, disappointments, injustices, lost opportunities? I want to I make one statement, and then I want to unpack it a little bit. I would, I, I'm not going to call it a point because it's too long. I, a point is usually like, you know, a phrase. I'm just going to make a statement. It's a long statement, but it's my whole point for my whole teaching. Also, before I tell you my point for this whole teaching, I want to I point out something that you may not have tuned into, but I have actually, as a pastor, in my teaching, avoided the use of the word radical. Now, that might not seem like anything to you, but the reason I've avoided the, the, the use of the word radical is because it's used all the time. And so I usually look for substitutes. But I couldn't find a good substitute. And so I'm making up for lost time, and I'm going to use the word radical several times in making my point. A life of radical service is made possible through a radical pursuit of God that leads to a radically transformed heart. A life of radical service is made possible through a radical pursuit of God that leads to a radically transformed heart. The, the disposition, the self-sacrificing disposition that we see in Joseph is not the product of someone working on their heart to become more self-sacrificing. It is the product of someone who has learned to walk in and enjoy and draw strength from and confidence from the favor of God in their life. First John 4.19, we love because he first loved us. God, in his love, which he uh, shows us, which he bestows on us, that is what transformed us, transforms us in our capacity to love others. A simple sort of picture of this is uh, last night, my wife made uh, moose burger sliders, and then we had crinkle cut fries. She put a, a cookie sheet of crinkle cut fries in the oven, baked them, burgers are ready on the table. She took the cookie sheet out, she put it on the table, 
Um, I'm still recovering from having grown up in a household of 15, and I still have these moments where I see food sufficient for eight people, and I think to myself, I'm not sure if that's going to be enough, especially when it's crinkle-cut fries. So as she puts the tray of fries on the table, I'm immediately like trying to geometrically dissect those portions, and I'm thinking, I don't know that I'm going to get enough fries, and so I'm actually taking fries before my kids sit down. Now I know I'm supposed to be the leader of my household, you know, the model of self-sacrifice, blah blah blah. But these are crinkle-cut <laughs> fries. <clears throat> I ate two sliders, I ate some fries, a couple of my kids showed up to the table late, and guess what? With a very full belly, I felt very generous with the fries that were left over. In a matter of minutes, I went from thinking, I don't think there's going to be enough for me, to thinking, take some fries, have all you want. The only difference mean is that my own belly was full. It is, through, it is through a deep satisfaction, contentment, a full belly, if you will, found in relationship with God, that we find within ourselves a surplus of, of capacity for serving others, loving others, caring for others. A life of radical service is made possible through a radical pursuit of God that leads to a radically transformed heart. I have set the Lord continually before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad. My glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. You will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me the way of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. I love just sort of the brimming confidence that comes out of a joy that's found in the presence of God and relationship with God. If it is true that a life of radical service is made possible through radical pursuit of God leading to a radically transformed heart, then the converse is true. A lack of ability for this kind of service, meaning no matter the circumstance, no matter how unfortunate, what comes out of me is, is divine love for others through, as, as exemplified through serving. When that is absent, what it actually reveals is not that I need to work more on being a serving person, what it actually reveals is that I have not met God, pursued God, and been transformed by God sufficiently for that to flow naturally out of me. And so in that moment, when, when, I, when I feel like my quality of life has been diminished, when my opportunities have been taken away, when I face unjust circumstances, or my life has been negatively impacted by people in power, I can either turn my attention and try to work harder at being a more selfless person. Or I can turn to God and say, God, unless you meet me in a powerful way, unless you are with me, key phrase, right? God was with him. Unless you are with me, I simply don't have sufficient supply 
to be the person that I know that you've called me to be in these circumstances. Joseph puts everything on the line and he's lied about, thrown in prison as a result. And what does he do? He stands up, God is still with me, and he puts everything on the line again, giving his life away to serve the people around him. The real issue you face is that you have not met God in an all-satisfying way that has turned your world and your life upside down and made you want to give your all for him at any cost. That is the fruit of a life transformed by his presence. And so when we run into a lesser quality of life, diminished opportunities, unjust circumstances, negative impacts, instead of blessing while suffering injustice, we complain the louder. I'm going to read you a quote it's from a few hundred years back by Jean-Pierre de Cussade, a French uh, spiritual leader, Christian leader. I'm going to read it in French, but I think the Lord will give you the interpretation. <laughs> Just kidding. Can God's will ever be inopportune? Can it be mistaken? But there is this business of mine. I require such and such a thing. The necessary helps have been taken from me. That man thwarts all of my good works. Is it not most unreasonable? This illness comes on just when my health is most necessary to me. And to all of this, there is but one answer. The will of God is the only thing necessary. Therefore, what he does not grant must be useless. My good souls, nothing is wanting to you. If only you knew what these events really are that you call misfortunes, accidents, and disappointments, and in which you can see nothing but what is irrelevant or unreasonable. You would lie deeply ashamed and excuse yourselves of your complainings as of blasphemies. But you never think of them as being the will of God, and his will is blasphemed by his own children who refuse to acknowledge it. <sighs> I first read that a couple of months ago. It's like getting hit by a Mack truck. You are wanting of nothing because the same God that was near to Joseph, that was with Joseph, is with you. Is present with you. Able to, willing to, ready to transform your inner person into his image as you cling to him. And when you do cling to him, suddenly you recognize that your perspective on the world around you is beginning to change. You become more confident, more trusting, more selfless, because you've been satisfied. This was the Apostle Paul, Philippians 3.8. I count all things to be loss. If you compare them 
to the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. He's the one for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them mere rubbish that I may gain Christ. He says if you, if you take the value of, of, of a satisfying connection, vital connection to Jesus Christ, and you were to compare that to all of the other things in life that we, that we look to for, to establish our own sense of value and security. He says, it's so, they're, 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 they're a grand canyons width apart from each other. Give me Christ. In fact, I would give up everything. <clears throat> I want to take a moment. We're going to go into worship. But I want to do something this morning. Uh, I would say probably most of you here, in some way over the past year, experienced a, a decline in quality of life. You've had your opportunities diminished. You've faced unjust circumstances. Your life has been negatively impacted by people who have authority over your life. And all of those things have brought particular things to the surface in your own heart and mind. And I would say just take a moment, not defensively, but honestly before the Lord and say, you see me. You know who I am. You see me in my weakness, my deficiencies. And rather than try to fix that, God, I'm going to turn to you and ask for more of you. I'm going to ask for more of your transforming power in my life. So just take a minute. Uh, Chris will play. And uh, just come before the Lord in your own heart um, and meet with him.